I'm Charlene Yennerfeld, and you're listening to About That Outdoor Job. Well, um, I don't know if you have looked at a map of Ontario recently, but it is absolutely massive. And I mean, most of the population of Ontario and even Canada is in the, the southern parts of it. So the north of Ontario is all just very remote. So I've flown kind of all over the, the north of Ontario, and it's just there's no one up there. <laughs> This is Sarah Smith, a bush pilot who flies in the remote north of Ontario, Canada. Bush flying, also called backcountry, outback, or off-airport flying, has been around for quite some time. In Canada, bush flying started back in 1919 for aerial forest surveys and reconnaissance for spotting forest fires. Bush pilots were operating in remote and rough terrain where there's not much prepared landing strips or runways. They had to navigate landing on dirt roads or suitable clearings. But what the Canadian outback has lots of is waterways, so flying on floats became an important segment of bush flying. And this is the type of bush flying Sarah does. Sarah, you grew up in northern western Ontario, near the small town of Dryden? I was quite a bit outside of Dryden, like really in the middle of nowhere it's about 40 minutes outside of Dryden and um yeah it's it's an unorganized township for those of you somewhat familiar with Canadian geography Dryden is almost a 1730 kilometer drive northwest of Toronto near the 51st parallel about 70 percent of Canadians they live south of the 49th parallel just saying Dryden's north and remote what was it like growing up there? So I grew up on a 600 acre llama farm. Um, and so we would be outside all the time taking care of the animals. And that was great fun for me. As a child, what was your family's relation to the outdoors? Was it mostly about work or did they, air quotes, play outdoors too? My dad and his whole family were very into skiing. Would your dad take you kids along on these Nordic skiing adventures? He had this little pulky that he would take us out in and just pull us behind the skis, yeah. <laughs> ah, that's his Norwegian heritage coming through right there. Yeah, those Norwegians in their skiing, you can't beat that. <laughs> What's one of your favorite skiing memories shared with your dad when you were a kid? We would go on these winter picnics and we would ski out and he would start a fire and we would roast things over the fire and throw snowballs at each other. And it was just the most fun thing that I can remember from my childhood. And then we would ski back and it was just the most wonderful way to spend an afternoon. By the time Sarah was 18, she was already a privately licensed pilot. Sarah, how did you first get into flying? Well, I'm a third generation pilot actually. So my, my dad has been a bush pilot for 50 years. My grandpa was a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. military, and then he opened up a, a fishing lodge north of the town that I grew up in. And so he and my grandma operated that. Uh, my grandma actually got her commercial license and multi-engine IFR seaplane ratings when she was 51 years old. So she is very inspiring to me. And I mean, I just kind of, I spent my childhood with my dad going flying with him and seeing the outpost camps and doing that kind of work, just being outside all the time. So it was something that I kind of naturally gravitated towards in my adult life. Sarah decided to follow in her family's footsteps and make flying her career too. Though she'd earned a private license, she'd now have to obtain a commercial one. 
You can earn this license through flight schools, and in Canada, there's also community colleges and universities offering aviation programs. What route did you take to get your commercial pilot license? There are quite a few good aviation colleges in Canada, and so I chose to go to college. It was a it was a government subsidized program, so you had to keep your marks up, but you like it was quite a bit less expensive than doing it privately. So that's a good way to go. And Sarah, was your college teaching a generalist aviation program? So the school that I went to was actually more geared toward the bush flying industry. Uh, they they used to actually give you some ski time, but at the time that I went, they just gave you a float rating. And so it was it was more geared toward people who wanted to do that kind of thing. And it worked out well for me. So I was able to get all those ratings that I needed there. Obviously, your chief responsibility as a bush pilot is to safely fly your passengers or cargo from one point to another. But what else does your outdoor job entail? As a bush pilot, you're kind of in charge of everything. I mean, you you get to the base in the morning and you get the plane ready, you pump the floats, you fuel, fuel up the airplane, you look it over, make sure everything's good, wash the bugs off your window. And then you're kind of dealing with the customers yourself as well. So you're loading and unloading your plane, you're giving the passengers a safety briefing, and then say you have to tie a canoe on to the side of the plane. You're doing that yourself. And as the pilot, you want to do that yourself so that you know that you know everything is done up to your standards. <laughs> so yeah, you're kind of just in charge of everything and every day is just so different because of all the variety in bush flying, which is really cool. So there's no such thing as a typical week for a bush pilot, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, it depends on who you're working for. If you're working for someone who owns their own outposts, you are generally flying to the same areas most of the time. If you're working for someone who just does charters, as I was last summer, you can fly just about anywhere that they send you. So there's kind of not really a typical work week with charter flying because every day is just so different. You may have picked up on Sarah's use of the term outposts. What's that? Well, to keep it simple, it's usually referred to a cabin or a collection of cabins in a remote area used to lodge people heading there to take part in outdoor activities like fishing or hunting. I'm going to ask you this question just because I love putting a number to it. What percentage of your work day would you estimate as time spent outdoors? I would say, I mean, so during the day, I would say 50% of my time is actually spent outside. Uh, loading the plane, unloading, fueling, pumping the floats, all of that is, you know, outside. But if I'm not outside, I'm flying around in a beaver with the window down, which is close to the same thing. <laughs> so being outdoorsy is kind of a must in this profession? If, if you're completely not outdoorsy, uh, it would probably be a good idea to not do the float flying. <laughs> uh, you end up spending a lot of time outside and you deal with the weather a lot and you deal with outdoorsy people pretty much specifically. So I would say that if you're going to fly in the bush, you should probably be at least a little bit outdoorsy. Little side note here. Sarah mentioned flying around in a beaver. 
I just want to make sure no one was imagining Sarah sitting on the back of a furry beaver. Rather, a beaver in the bush flying lingo refers to a de Havilland DHC-2 beaver aircraft. When listening to Sarah speak of bush flying, you quickly realize the depth of her passion for not only the flying, but the remote landscape that's her office. Every day I'm flying over this pristine territory that's pretty much untouched. And it's just, I know that it's going to be beautiful, especially if there's a, a beautiful sunrise. It just gets you really excited to get flying in the morning. You'd assume this is what feeds her enthusiasm for what she does. It is partly, but there's more to it. I really enjoy working with the people. Like I said before, uh, they're just so excited to be out there. And it's it's fun to work with people who are in you know, that, that good of a mood. <laughs> so the people that we fly are generally very excited. I mean, they're, they're going on a very exciting trip. And some of them, I mean, they've been looking forward to this all year. Some of them have been saving their money all year. And so they are just beyond stoked to get out there. And you're kind of the one that's bringing them out there. So they really usually have a very positive attitude. And though Sarah's doing her dream job, she's quite candid about the challenges she faces as a bush pilot. It's quite a process, actually, to get a job in aviation. And I would say that starting out is the hardest part. Once you get quite a few hours, you have a much easier time finding a job. But when you're first starting out, it's very hard to find a place to fit in and to make a start in the industry. How did you get your first chance? So I actually started working the first summer after college with my dad. He flew for the same company for many, many years. And so I, I worked with them for a summer. And my dad has a little airplane actually on floats. And so I would fly that to check on the outposts. I would go with him when he was flying. I would do a bunch of maintenance and stuff around the base. So it's, it's a good way to get your foot in the door. You can do bush flying all year round, but you've chosen to do so during the summer season only. Any reasons why? The summer flying is very intense. And so it's May to October. It's just those those months that you're working, you're just working so much all the time. So I I think that if I were to fly in the winter, I would have to find a job that wasn't quite so intense. So I like the variety that the dog sledding gives me in the winter. I like to have so much outside time doing that and working with the dogs. So wait, in the winter, you're a dog sled guide? Yeah, so for I'm about to start my seventh winter as a dog sled guide. And that has actually become just as much of a career for me as the bush flying. And it's been absolutely wonderful. I love it so much. I love the dogs. I really like the people that I work for. It's just a small company. It's the guy that owns it. And I'm the only other guide there, really. Since starting bush flying back in 2017, Sarah's been moving around every six months or so for her employment. I asked her how this side of her outdoor job affects her. I do find as I get older that I crave some stability in my life. When I was younger, it was fine that I moved around every six months and I had a new place every so often and I just moved all the time and that was normal and fine and I just didn't think anything of it. But now as I get older, I find that I do like some stability. I do like to have my own space. Uh, I like to have a place of my own. That definitely changes as you age. But uh, it's not impossible to 
make that life work if you find a base that you like if you find a company that you enjoy working for but uh it's it's definitely something to consider as you progress in the industry Sophie Nolan, wilderness guide and founder of Sidetracked Adventures, that was our guest on episode 9, also spoke about this challenge in her outdoor job. Both Sarah and Sophie recognize that when younger, the moving around can actually be something that's attractive to their profession. As both these women have discovered, as you get older, the desire to set roots, have some stability in your own space, isn't always easy to combine with their chosen outdoor jobs. It's not that it's impossible but it does ask some creativity and compromising. The aviation industry is booming right now. After a few tough years due to the global pandemic, we're now seeing a growing pilot shortage both in Canada and around the world. More and more bush pilots are leaving the field as airlines woo them, creating lots of opportunities in bush flying. As there's more opportunities to get into bush flying, are you seeing more women pilots? I think there's still most pilots are men, and that's just kind of the way it is. It's kind of the way it's always been, but I would say it's trending more uh, that women are becoming pilots for sure. It's still, I mean, there's a huge, huge gap between the the percentage of women versus men pilots, but. I think that more and more women are becoming pilots. And of course, like I said, the aviation industry is a really good industry to be in right now. So um, I would say there's still not a lot of women flying in the bush. And as a woman in this still male-dominated industry, what kind of hurdles have you had to deal with being a female bush pilot? Most of the people that I've worked with have been really good. Most of my bosses and coworkers have been great, and they didn't seem to really care. But uh, some people, you know, don't really, I mean, I'm not the person that you'd expect to <laughs> to jump out of the airplane when you're leaving your remote northwestern Ontario outpost. So uh, some of them are a little weirded out, and I feel like some of them would maybe not want to listen to me, but I... Like I, I do have to brief my passengers and tell them what's going on and make my own decisions. I think once they see that, you know, I do know what I'm doing, they, they kind of understand that I'm supposed to be there. <laughs> and what about pay? Is there a gap between what female pilots and male ones make? At least in the bush, I know that the pay is pretty much the same, whether you're male or female. They're just having such a hard time finding people that they are kind of willing to pay them, <laughs> no matter who they are. In your experience, Sarah, what would you say that you bring to the job as a female bush pilot that perhaps your male counterparts don't? I would say that I do have pretty good customer service skills. That's one thing that um, I've always, I've always been good at, you know, talking to people. So I think that I can relate to my passengers in a certain way, especially it's really fun when I have passengers that are women because <laughs> they get really, really excited to see a woman flying. What's some of the best advice you've received that's helped you in your profession? I think that the best advice I've ever received is to always leave yourself an out. So when you're getting into any situation, you have to consider uh, what you're getting into and how you can get out of it in case something goes wrong. And Sarah definitely had to figure a way out before this situation went terribly wrong. It was uh, the last day of the season. This 
past summer and I was ready to head out of town. I was about to get in my car and go. And my boss texted me and he said, well, can you move this plane to our other base and fuel it up? And I said, no problem. And it had been sitting for a little while and somebody uh, came down to the dock and put a new battery in it. And so I, silly me, I assumed that it would be good to go, but I kicked it away from the dock and I could not get it started. And so I am kind of floating down the lake <laughs> towards another airplane at the neighbor's dock. And so I ended up having to uh, take my jacket and sweater off. I didn't have time to take my boots off and I jumped in the water. It was the end of October and it was very cold. <laughs> and I was uh, swimming and along with this airplane trying to push it away from the dock and the other plane that I was floating towards. I don't think I've ever swam so hard in my life. <laughs> Part of the mission of the series Women in Outdoor Jobs is to share the stories and experiences of women like Sarah who successfully made the outdoors their living so that women who want to achieve that for themselves can benefit from their learnings and advice. This is what Sarah would say to you if you're considering bush flying. I would say go for it, but I would also tell them that they're going to have to work hard for it. There's no getting around that. The schooling is, I mean, it's challenging for sure, especially when you first start out. And if you're going to a college or a university, it's, it, it can be challenging. And getting started in the industry can be challenging, but don't, don't let that get you down. You know, you'll, once, it may seem like it's going to take forever, but you'll, you'll get it eventually. And once you do get a few hours, you'll be amazed at how, uh, how many opportunities open up for you. It's, it's an exciting life. It's a challenging life. It's lots of work, but it's, uh, it's, it's really worth it, I think. And if, if it is your passion, then there are ways to go about it that you can make it work. <laughs> Thank you to Sarah for taking the time to talk with me. You can find Sarah on Instagram at sarahjoanna01. Other resources are listed in our show notes. This was our last episode for 2022, and I wanted to thank you for listening. As I'm nearing the celebration of our first year launching the podcast, it's time to get a little introspective. And so I'd like to ask you for five to 10 minutes of your time. I'd love to get to know you, the listener, a bit better and get your insights on the podcast. You can do that by completing our audience poll you can do that by completing our audience poll that you can find directly on our website at aboutthatoutdoorjob.com and at the link in our podcast's Instagram bio. You can also find the link in the show notes. Again, thank you for listening and happy holidays. This episode, this episode was produced and hosted by me, Charlene Yennerfeld.